so the Alliance Leagues have been delayed. Right now we're stuck watching the clock tick by, waiting for the season to begin. Fear has given us all a battering. But you know what? We took everything it had and we're not backing down. We've all shown amazing courage and once the Alliance Leagues take to the pitch again, it's going to be one hell of a season. Alliance, we cover courage. Welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post Political Podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, and Rob's here with me today as well. Hi, Rob. Morning, Jerry. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Um, we're back for another week, obviously, but uh, as as regular listeners will know, I'm in London whilst Rob is um, up in Yorkshire, and it's been a bit wet, hasn't it, Rob? Uh, to say the least, yes. It's. I'm looking out my window this morning, and uh, we had a, there was a, a rainbow about an hour ago, which was delightful, uh, and then it started snowing, and then it kind of downgraded to sleet, and then to rain, and now it's kind of drizzling a bit. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what the rest of the day is going to throw at us. But uh, yeah, leaving aside my own personal circumstances, uh, across the north, there's this uh, so-called Storm Christoph, which has been sweeping uh, eastwards over the past 48 hours. And it, it's, well, it's it's caused a lot of uh, severe uh, problems, lots of flooding in Greater Manchester. I think in Yorkshire, it's not been quite as bad as people thought it might be i mean i i heard from a, a senior person at a local council uh, in, in yorkshire who was saying they were expecting it to be worse than last winter um mm-hmm. and obviously we all remember um you know sort of november 2019 how bad that was in south yorkshire and then there was further severe flooding in calderdale and east yorkshire in february so the, the worry was it was going to be even worse than that just because of the uh, the long duration of the uh, of, of the heavy rainfall and obviously all the usual things have been done you know um, sandbags deployed and um that the, you know the flood the flood warning siren went off in, in Calderdale and everyone's been sort of hunkered down um expecting the worst and it, it so far touch wood it hasn't been quite as bad as people might have thought um and I, I've seen the the chief executive of Leeds council, uh, t- tweeted just now a close escape in Leeds with Storm Christoph now waning but residents well prepared so you know it's, it's probably too soon to uh, as we speak at the moment too soon to be sure that that we've completely got away with it but maybe it's not been quite as bad as people uh an- anticipated although like I say in yeah. in, in 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 uh in the northwest hundreds of homes have been uh evacuated and I I think uh uh, yeah, we're expecting the Prime Minister to be visiting some of these flood hit areas uh, in, in, the, in the coming day or two. Yeah, I mean, I guess the fear is, and I say, you know, I'm not there at the moment, but I do remember I was, um, well, with you guys, wasn't I, for, for when the floods hit in, yeah, November 2019, because that was also election time. So I was um, obviously up covering the election. And, you know, this devastates people, doesn't it, this kind of flooding? So you can absolutely see why you know, everyone's on high alert. People are saying, God, we can't handle it again. They're saying we've still got PTSD from last time around. The government's come under quite a bit of flack because they have announced this £5.2 billion for flood defences, but that's over the next six years. You know, people are saying, well, what on earth do you expect us to do with that now? On the other hand, 
there have been improvements made. It's just, I think, often you might expect to see kind of big flood barriers and things like that, but actually it's smaller works that make a lot of difference. And I know that in Don Valley, for example, I spoke to uh, the Conservative MP there, Nick Fletcher, he said he'd been around and seen people who had been flooded last time who said, you know, actually, I do feel a lot safer this time. I feel more prepared. and I feel more resilient. So that's good news. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've had two COBRA meetings this week already on uh, this. A uh, bit confusingly, Downing Street told me earlier in the day um, on uh, Tuesday that there wasn't going to be one and then there was one, but we'll uh, we'll skate on past that. Um, <laughs> but uh, then the Prime Minister called another one yesterday. So they do seem alive to the issue. It doesn't feel like last time, does it, Rob, where we were basically begging the Prime Minister to get his wellies on and get out and see people. Yeah, quite. I mean, I guess there's the, there's the immediate response isn't there and you know the calling of the cobra committee and the the immediate work that generally local councils and you know local uh, authorities do to you know try and mitigate the damage that a flood can cause there's there's that aspect of it and then there's mm. the longer term flood uh, prevention work and sort of the erecting of flood barriers and uh, all that kind of stuff and you know we've been reporting for uh, ages since 2015 about the attempts by lead city council to persuade uh the government to hand over the amount of money they say is needed to prevent uh you know the very worst flooding uh mm-hmm. in in west leeds and then going even further than that there's the efforts to sort of the wider more holistic efforts to stop uh uh floods sort of coming to urban areas in the first place and the sort of the um and it is quite interesting sort of pilot going on at the moment that is affecting North Yorkshire where the the government as part of its sort of agricultural reforms is planning to uh, pay farmers to allow their lands to flood periodically uh, so as to avoid the flood water going down down river and um, and affecting urban areas but they fit a bit of a snag in that the amount of money that they want to offer uh, to persuade farmers to do this is uh, is nowhere near enough. There was a interesting select committee hearing um, a, a few weeks ago where uh, it, it was uh, said that a North Yorkshire farmer had been offered only three thousand pounds to allow his his land to flood, uh, and he said that he needed about fifty times that for it to be worth uh, worthwhile. So there's obviously a bit of a disparity between how much the government wants to pay on this and uh, and, and what farmers believe it's. It's worth, but I think it's you know to, to do adequate flood prevention, particularly in a in an age where you know because of climate change, the, these kind of events are going to be having happening more and more often. It, it is a combination of all those those three things. Well, that's what I was going to say. Actually, there's some research out, isn't there, over the last couple of days from um, is it Harriet Watt University, I think, in um, in Scotland, who um, are saying that you know the the number of floods that we see, the kind of instance of floods is going to rise massively. So it really, yeah, does need to, does need to be worked on. I mean, so that's big news locally, but of course we are an international organisation also. Um, and we've been looking across to America as well and seen the inauguration of um, new president Joe Biden this week. It just feels like America has breathed a sigh of relief, actually, that um, even if you support Trump, I think that, you know, the kind of 5am angry tweets are gone, that maybe things can be a little bit more 
relaxed. Um, did you watch the inauguration, Rob? Uh, well, I have to say, uh, I was busy doing other things. So I was sort of periodically <laughs> looking on Twitter to see what people were saying about it uh, in amongst writing about uh, slightly more parochial domestic uh, t- t- topics for flooding not that that's you know not an interesting but uh yeah I, I i kept an eye on it but i mean i guess my my limited my my limited expertise on this uh, the only thing that occurs to me is that there's still uh you know 74 million people still voted for donald trump that mm-hmm. despite uh you know everyone is is very happy uh, or at least a lot of people are very happy that joe biden has been elected and it's a new era but you still got these 74 million people who uh despite everything that's happened in the last four years thought that donald trump was the man to continue to lead lead the free world and you know it, it's been suggested that if there hadn't been a pandemic um maybe trump would have got back in for a, a second term and i think I, I, over here like it, it's a bit hard to get your head around that that idea that he still retains this huge groundswell of, of support but i think it, it what it means is that joe biden may have been elected but it's still uh you know it's still a very divided nation and he's still got this this huge job to do to sort of to unite it in the next few years yeah absolutely and you know people might think oh you're your supposed why are you talking about the u.s election but actually this really impacts us because the relationship that our government and our leaders have with the US, especially in this post-Brexit world in terms of trade, in terms of how we tackle China and Russia and other countries like that, it's going to be so important. And, you know, like the relationship that Boris Johnson has with Joe Biden, that special relationship that we've so often heard about over the years and how that is formed, what that looks like is going to be key. Um, You know, we already know that we've been promised in Yorkshire that some of our producers will have, you know, really good supply lines with this uh, trade deal that we should be able to secure with the US. So it is going to be an important um, kind of moment for all of us. So we'll keep keep an eye on it. Um, We've probably prattled on for long enough. Now, the guest I've got today is uh, Sir Bob Kerslake, who some of you might have heard of. He is a previous uh, chief executive of Sheffield City Council. He's the former head of the civil service, but in more uh, recent times, he is chairing the UK 2070 Commission, uh, which is looking at regional inequalities in the UK and um, better known maybe as something that we bang on about a lot, the, the North-South divide. And he's got some really interesting kind of insights into what COVID has done for the North-South divide, but also on kind of levelling up and and whether we've achieved that he's been making some quite interesting interventions recently hasn't he Rob he's, he's a he's an interesting guy uh he is yeah I mean I guess we um you know we're interested in him because of uh you know his former past as the head of the civil service but he you know he knows Yorkshire he knows the the north because of his time as a, a chief exec uh up up here and yeah he has strong views on uh devolution and the the you know, the, the extent to which it's being done and how much it needs to be done more in the future and uh you know issues like transport infrastructure and stuff so yeah it's it's a, a fasc- he's a fascinating uh guy with a lot of interesting stuff to say cool let's have a listen to our chat earlier this week well thank you so much for coming on pod zone country it's a pleasure to have you how are you doing I'm very well, thanks. Uh, or as well as can be expected, given we've all been locked away for the best part of a year. Um, I know. Can you believe that it's getting on to a year? I can't. It seems it time has both gone 
simultaneously really really slowly and really really quickly for me how about you it's been uh, an extraordinary year and uh, it's probably felt longer than it, than it has because at each point you think you're uh, on the way out of this period and then of course we hit another lockdown so it's been pretty much uh, ongoing hasn't it really with some very odd fits and starts along the way it is. It's the hope that kills you. And I looked at some photos, actually, from um, it would have been Christmas before the one we've just had. And I look so much younger this year has aged me kind of. Uh, uh, well, horribly, frankly, but uh, we carry on. We, we, we carry on. on. Uh, yes, not enough exercise would be my problem. But yes, you're right. Oh, God, me too. But um, obviously you're with us today because uh, we want to have a chat about, well, what I imagine has been keeping you very busy during the lockdown, which is um, the UK 2070 Commission. Do you want to start us off by telling us a bit about what the Commission is, a bit of history, and kind of what your what your role is in it? Yeah, sure. Look, um, UK 2070 sounds quite a strange title, but it was deliberately chosen because what we're doing is looking at uh, regional inequalities. That Some people call it the North-South, mm. but it's actually wider than uh, just the North. And we chose the title... Uh, 2070, because we wanted to look back 50 years and forward 50 years, albeit with recommendations for the here and now as well, because this problem hasn't happened overnight. It's been the time in the long time in the making, uh, and it's not going to go away quickly either. So uh, we felt you needed a long perspective in order to really understand why we are such an unequal country in the UK. Mm-hmm. And we know we're an unequal country. We write about it at the Yorkshire Post all the time, whether it's in terms of kind of, you know, uh, housing is one we've looked at recently or, um, you know, wage inequality, opportunities or health inequality, which has obviously been a massive one this year. And I'm sure we will get onto it and um, get onto it soon. So what was the... I guess, what was the idea behind the commission? Is it to kind of advise government so they can make better policy? Is that the idea? Well, that was part of it. I think what we wanted was an independent inquiry. So we're not attached to government, mm. we're not attached to any one organisation per se. We've had support from three universities. And what we really wanted to do was to look at the evidence, say, if you measured inequality, uh, how big is it? How does it compare with other countries? And what's happened over time? Uh, have we got better or worse on this? And sadly, what we found was that almost any indicator, we are one of the most unequal countries uh, in the developed world. In fact, uh, Professor Philip McCann looked at 30 countries on 28 indicators, and we found he found that we were number 28. So what I call Eurovision Song Contest wow. levels of underperformance. Yeah. We are very divided in this country on health, on wealth, on uh, uh, basically facilities and actually on investment as well. Um, And so uh, we felt that this then needed to be explored more deeply. And we came up with some of the things we thought might change it. And it's important to say all of this happened, this rebalancing investigation, if you like, before uh, the current government talked about levelling up. It predated that in many ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because it feels like for people who have, I guess, lived, worked, studied in areas which um, sometimes get this kind of left behind tag, which isn't my favourite phrase in the world, to be honest. But, you know, it is one that is used often 
knew this. It was obvious to them that there were these inequalities, but it seemed like there hadn't been anything particularly kind of you know tangible that we could grasp before and point to and say look here is all the evidence which shows that you know you're talking about that Eurovision table that really it's a, it's nil point for the for yeah. the UK and yeah. you've had what three reports out to date now have you? We have yes and you make a really good point here because I mean I live in Sheffield I'm in Sheffield now as we do this uh, podcast but you can imagine mm. that when we were all traveling I was in London working in London and I could see it, you know, it's, it's kind mm-hmm. of stares you in the face, literally. But you need to have hard evidence to, to base policy on. And that's what we felt very strongly. And that's why we did such a lot of work in the first report, really examining the evidence. Uh, and what we found in a way, though, is that there is a sense you might think, well, the South is OK and well off and we're not. And therefore, you know, they're, they're winners and there's actually... Uh, the consequence of this imbalance is partly economic underperformance for the UK as a whole, but it, it's also about overheating in the South, long journey times, massive costs of housing, um, basically um, real issues around environment. And so in a sense, everybody loses from this inequality. Uh, it's not a question they win, we lose in the North, if you see what I mean. It's much deeper than that. Mm. It's about the whole wealth and well-being of this country, really, I think, uh, that that stems uh, from this problem. And it's something, isn't it, that we know, like you mentioned, the levelling up agenda that this government has wanted to focus on. Does it feel to you like there's a renewed focus now? How long have people been trying to tackle this inequality? Have they been trying to tackle this inequality? Are they now, I suppose, is another well, question. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, is this is this a new realisation? No, in one sense, it isn't new. What I think was new about our report was the depths of the inequality and the direction it was going in. I think um, we found that yes. some parts of the UK were less productive than parts of East Germany before the unification. I mean, it was quite extraordinary, really. Um, But I think the government's intervention to uh, promote levelling up is welcome, and we've welcomed it in the Commission. Mm. What we have said, though, is if you're serious about this, then you need to, as we described it, go big or go home. You need a comprehensive, long-term, large-scale plan to address levelling up. Anything less than that won't cut the mustard. It won't do the job that we need to do. And in many ways, it's worse than not doing anything at all because you raise expectations and then you don't follow through. And then there's another sense of government uh, promised something they haven't delivered. So our big message to government has been, uh, if you're going to do this, do it properly. Address all the issues that you need to address and do it over a period of time. You know, put some serious welly into it, bluntly, uh, because if you don't, uh, you won't change it. It's too deep rooted. And all the history has been of short term, what I would call pea shooter initiatives that haven't uh, done mm-hmm. the job properly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I suppose your background in, in you know, um, civil service and also, you know, at Sheffield City Council, you must have seen that inequality kind of the whole the whole time in 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 those roles so 
knowing knowing the, the kind of things to address, I suppose. Well, that's right. And I, as I say, I don't want to uh, diminish some of the efforts that have been made to tackle regional inequalities. They have been well-intentioned and uh, you know, people doing them have wanted them to make an impact right. and some of them have made an impact. Um, but at the core of the problem has been uh, uh, the lack of sustained effort and also the fact that when you look at things like investment, uh, the money's been going in a different direction. It's been going more to the south than the north. And it's understandable because if you're trying to deal with the problems of overheating, then you have to invest in infrastructure. And the north has been uh, left out of that, really. And so we feel very strongly that it's going to need a concerted effort. And as you say, when I was in government, what I saw was, uh, I think, quite a scepticism about the impact of the measures um, and and therefore, in a sense, almost uh, a fatalism, really. It is what it is. We're not really going to change it. And we have to end that because it is possible to do something here. This isn't mission impossible. We can make a difference uh, if we want to. So what needs to happen then, I suppose? What what have your reports so far recommended needs to happen? I know you said you need to go big or go home. There needs to be this long-term overarching plan. What policies, I suppose, could the government be introducing today, um, tomorrow, this year, next year, to really hammer this issue and get some get some kind of, you know, some movement on it? Yeah, good question. I think in our report, we put 10 areas for action and they range from investment in infrastructure, you'd expect that. We've got some major gaps there. Uh, investment in skills and education, investment in housing, actually, changing the way we approach housing, um, developing a proper plan for the country, um, doing work around the high-tech industries, if you like, the new economy, but also um, the more day-to-day economy as well. So attacking it on all fronts, really, is basically what we said you needed to do here. But the most important... Throw the kitchen sink at it. <laughs> well, in a sense, yes, but in a very specific way, so very particular measures. The second thing we said is that you need to devolve. You need to shift power out of Whitehall and Westminster. We're too centralised as a country, as well as being very unequal. So shifting power out to the mayors, to local authorities and others is a critical part of the story. We also said, though, you needed clear leadership, someone in the cabinet, a senior level, whose job was to move forward the levelling up agenda. It could be, as it was under the coalition, um, the chancellor. But someone of that firepower needs mm-hmm. to be in charge of levelling up. And crucially, above all else, you need a plan. At the moment, if you ask anybody, in fact, in government or outside government, what they thought levelling up was, they'll all give you a different answer. There's no definition and there's no way of measuring whether the government has succeeded or not um, when we come to the next election. Um, So there's a whole raft of things that need to be put in place if we're going to be serious about levelling up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for a start, I mean, this is a bit of self-promo. We'd never do that on Pod's own country, obviously. But, uh, you know, our Power Up the North manifesto across uh, the Yorkshire Post and many papers, I think, is a good place to start. But there is no, you're quite right, a kind of almost checklist by which you can compare 
policies and things like that at the moment, is there? No, there isn't. I mean, we have a levelling up fund of four billion, which is good news, but it's a drop in the ocean compared to what we what we need. And crucially, you need every bit of government to be clear what the goal is and then work towards it. Otherwise, what you risk is a sort of well-intentioned uh, but very vague aspiration. And everybody then says what they're doing anyway is levelling up. I've seen it many times in government. So, you know, every action you take, you just put the words levelling up in and that's supposed to add to the strength of it. There's got to be a plan. You've got to know what you're trying to achieve. You've got to evaluate how far you've got. All of the basic things that you, we all know make a difference. And crucially, it's going to have to carry on well past this government. It's going to require sustained effort for a long time. And, and you're right, I think, uh, in Yorkshire, I think we have now some really interesting developments on leadership. Of course, we'll have uh, the West Yorkshire mayor, as and when we can have the elections, of course. But um, we also have um, existing mayor in South Yorkshire. We have councils who are champing at the bit to um, get going on recovery following COVID. So there's a lot that can be done locally if mm -hmm. the government are giving them um, the uh, support they need. What we found as far as COVID is concerned is that it's made the task um, harder. So COVID has been a huge disruptor of our lives. We know that. Um, it's also been a huge accelerator of some things like online uh, shopping, for example. But it hasn't been mm -hmm. a great leveller. It's not levelled up at all. <clears throat> in fact, if anything, it's hit those who were most exposed in the labour market, most vulnerable, much harder. And so levelling up has become harder, but it's become more urgent as well. And I want to get onto those issues, that devolution and COVID stuff. But I'm really interested in something you said there about when we're looking at defining levelling up, because something I've noticed, and I'm not 100% sure it's been picked up on by many other people, I'm sure it has by you, Bob, is that levelling up has been used by the government to um, kind of say it's going to fix so many of society's ills. I think during the uh, you know Black Lives Matter protests that we saw, um, I distinctly remember sitting in a... Um, government briefing and uh being told that um leveling up would help solve the issues behind that and then i think in oh, it must have been december boris johnson said at pmqs it would help those with disabilities as well and don't get me wrong they're obviously things that absolutely should be addressed in our society and need to be figured out but i think this this lack of definition on leveling up like you say allows it to be kind of plastered on every issue as some kind of magical miracle fix when we don't have any more concrete kind of you know detail on it i think that is both uh right and a huge risk for the government if it becomes a catch-all phrase people will start to become very cynical they'll spot that in just the way you have and they'll start to not believe what government says really on these things i personally believe they need to keep it at the very specific uh, agenda of regional spatial inequalities, the north-south divide, as many people call it. I think it's got to stay in that space because that's at the core of our inequality in this country. It's not the only inequality we have. We have huge other differences as well. We're a very unequal society in many ways. But I think if levelling up is going to mean anything, it's got to be tackling 
these huge spatial imbalances. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's look, let's move on to COVID a bit, because we've seen mm. those regional equalities completely exposed, like you, like you mentioned there. We had um, from the Northern, Northern Housing Consortium on a few weeks ago, Chief Exec Tracy from there talking about actually how COVID had exposed how poor housing was in the North for a lot of people, how they'd now been you know, forced to confine themselves to their homes. We've seen it in the number of deaths in the North being substantially more than in the South because people's health outcomes are generally worse. Are there, are there more areas that have been exposed in these divides by COVID past those kind of two that I mentioned there that you've found? Yeah, it's again a good question. I think... Um... It's important to say, first of all, that, you know, everywhere has been affected. London's been hit hard uh, and we shouldn't sort, in a sense, not recognise that. But typically, COVID has affected those in the labour market who are in more insecure jobs um, and uh, where the turnover is most rapid. And so um, and there is a greater preponderance of lower income, more insecure workers in, in the north than in the south. So that's one major factor, I think, in terms of the different impact of COVID. Um, and But I'd say further than that, really, it's kind of stopped some of the existing plans that are underway in their tracks, really, on regeneration. You know, it's put places backwards in many ways. And so we've got almost to recover that lost ground on the economy, um, on health, uh, on the environment, on housing, before we can, in a sense, start to revisit the the gap itself, really. I think there's a lot of lost ground to be caught up across almost every issue you can care to mention. I think you're completely right on the job stuff um, in particular, because I remember speaking to a gentleman very, very early on in the pandemic. Um, it must have been kind of you know, March, April last year, and he was being told to stay at home and work from home. And he worked for a clothing warehouse, mm-hmm. um, the well-known retailer, online retailer, and said, you know, I've got a wife and kids at home. I can't not go to work, but I have to, but, so I have to go into work because I've got to earn money, but I'm going into work and it's unsafe. There are no measures in place. I'm next to people all day. And but it's exactly that kind of person in that kind of situation yeah. who's been hit harder. So you can't work from home, isn't it? Well, exactly right. And I think... Um... Uh, there's been I've heard many stories of the same type as well. Um, so it's unquestionably the case that people have taken risks they probably shouldn't have taken in order to avoid losing their job or losing earnings. Uh, and it's it's important to say the government have put mm. a lot of money in to keep the show on the road in the country, uh, but it's not going to go on forever. And we have to have a plan for when we move away from furlough when we move back to uh, a normal functioning economy, we have to have a plan for how we're going to help those businesses, those industries, those people who've been most adversely affected. Yeah, and I suppose that will be interesting when we come to, you know, um, if if we have the chance of making any bigger, you know, financial fiscal events later this year and things like that, and what we'd like to see in that to really start addressing that. I mean, the Chancellor himself is a Yorkshire MP you'd hope that he would be aware of these issues and kind of alive to them I suppose yes uh, I would hope he is as well but he's going to have a lot of competing pressures isn't he there's a lot of voices now to say we've got you know we've we're spending way above what we intended the deficit is at levels we've never seen before 
um, you know, we've got to start reining in or raising taxes. And I see the kind of temptation to do that, but not now is my view. I think you've got to focus on um, getting through COVID and then starting to recover the economy. There will be a point along the way where we can start to um, consolidate the economy, start to address these gaps, but not yet. Um, the focus now has got to be recovery. Uh, and that's it would be my message. And I think he will. Oh my God, because... Absolutely. I was going to say, oh my God, I suppose a return to kind of what we would know as austerity would be pretty disastrous for, for any kind of levelling up agenda, wouldn't it? Completely. And I think the Prime Minister has recognised that and we just need to make sure that that follows through. But it's going to need more than just uh, avoiding austerity. It's going to need serious investment as well. Uh, and that's going to be the tricky bit. Mm -hmm. And more than has been so far promised. Yep. <clears throat> and I, I, know that, I know how it works in the Treasury. There'll be plenty of people saying, look, we can't afford it. Personally, I think we can't afford not to move forward on the uh, levelling up agenda. Yeah, quite right, quite right. So let's look forward. I know that um, you're going to be doing some work on, you mentioned it earlier, on kind of devolution and kind of task forces and mayors and things like that. We've obviously, well, we're supposed to have the local elections in May where uh, West Yorkshire is getting its first mayor. Of course, we don't know if they're going to go ahead yet because of COVID. There's been whisperings they might be cancelled. But, you know, you place devolution really at the heart of being able to achieve these aims. Why Why is devolution so important? Well, look, the reason it's important is this. Um, we have, first of all, a very centralised country in the UK. And that means that the centre is overloaded and uh, the places, the regions and, and local places and cities and towns are underpowered. They lack the power to do things that they can do in other countries. The second thing is that because we are so unequal, policies don't work consistently in every place. You need an ability to adapt the policy to fit the local circumstances, housing being a very obvious one. We don't have one housing market in this country. We have many. Um, and so uh, we need devolution for that reason as well. And then I think the third reason is that I think the nature of our economy is changing. And it will rely on, I think, a much more agile uh, and adaptable workforce and indeed uh, a business community. And those things require leadership at local level. They need uh, strong uh, political leadership, but they need more power to tackle the things that are needed for that area quickly. Um, we often find that, question, that the key investments needed just don't happen quickly enough, really. You look at Leeds and the, the need for a transport system in, in, in Leeds, you know, the mm -hmm. tram or whatever it turns out to be. You know, how many years has that been held up by indecision, really? Um, so there's got to, devolution is going to be part and parcel of rapidly growing out of uh, the impact of COVID and getting every part of the UK to fire on all four cylinders. I think the local elections myself will be critical um, and I think mayors have come of age and I'm pleased now that we'll have a West Yorkshire mayor to accompany the South Yorkshire mayor. I think when will they happen? Well, I suspect they'll be put off to something like the end of July, towards the end of July. 
but I don't think they'll be cancelled altogether again. No, no, well, hopefully not. I mean, I'm really interested, obviously, in devolution generally. It's something we write about a lot. Um, I do often wonder, I suppose, if if we have real devolution in these deals that we've already signed, I know there are definitely critics who don't think that we do and that, you know, Metro Mayor should have things like maybe tax setting powers and things like that. Do you think the current devolution deals, the current setups, if we have them offer enough uh, powers away from Whitehall to achieve those aims that we're speaking about? I think they're a good step in the right direction. here. You've got the um, gain share fund, Mm -hmm. um, additional funding every year to invest. You've got the ability to have a precept, of course, an additional precept for for the mayors. Um, And you've got responsibilities over transport and other activities. So we shouldn't diminish the value of what's been devolved. But I would see it as a first step. I don't think it completes the job at all. And... um, it's specifically you do need access to different sources of income uh, at local level than simply relying on um, council tax and business rates. Uh, you need the ability to move money around between different uh, budgets to suit your own local needs, something that at the moment is hugely inhibited. Um, and I think you need also a plan that goes beyond deals the deal model approach, you know, the West Yorkshire deal and so on, have been good to make some progress, but I think it's a, a way of doing things that's kind of run out of road now. I think we need a national plan mm. involved and not always relying on having a mayor. Mayors are right for some places, they're not right for others. And so it's a good start, mm. but it's not the finish of the devolution journey. In its own right, it will make a difference, but it won't complete the levelling up work, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. I suppose my concern is that it still feels like sometimes, you know, obviously there has to be some sort of central control, but the government still has almost the, you know, the whip hand in handing out these deals. And we've seen it, you know, in recent weeks with um, Transport for the North, for example, and their their budgets being cut and things like that. Yeah. It feels very much still kind of it's in the government's gift take away this devolution that's been handed out. I, I think you're completely right about that. that. And one of the things we talk about in our uh, most recent paper is what we call parity of esteem. At the moment, it still feels like the local government, the mayors are very junior partners and they're more or less expected to do as they're told. And the deals are a way of, in a sense, telling them what they have to do um, and rewarding or punishing them if they don't do them or do do them, um, rather than genuine shifting of power and responsibility. Um, So it it does still feel like um, uh, they're on a short leash, aren't they, really, in terms of government uh, and and how much power they're willing to give them. And we had, I mean, the the recent, uh, let's call it falling out between Greater Manchester and the government over funding was an example of that. Mm -hmm. But I also think that story, I mean, was a really interesting example of how mayors are now beginning to develop a profile and a presence that just didn't exist in local government before. Um, People know, they've heard of Andy Burnham now as the mayor of Greater Manchester. Uh, I'd like to see a lot more of that, a lot more visible figures, Andy Burnham, Andy Street. Uh, Let's see the same in West Yorkshire as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's going to be an interesting race to watch as well because it's the first, you know, whether it's delayed until the summer or whenever, it's going to be the first real test for both, you know, Boris Johnson's government, but also for Keir Starmer as the new Labour leader. So I do think it's going to be a really interesting race in, you know, those local council seats as well as as well as the mayoralities. As yeah, well. you're quite right. Um, it's a bumper crop of elections, we have to say, and a lot will uh, be riding on it for both political leaders. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, look, well, I know you're very busy, so I'm going to let you go in a minute. But what are your kind of, um, well, to feel free to tell me your personal aims for 2021 as well. But with uh, the commission, uh, let's start with let's what start are you, with... <laughs> what are you looking to achieve? <laughs> I don't know what my personal aim is. I have to think about that one. But um, for the commission, let's deal with that. Um, we really want to put our money where our mouth is. We talked about in our last report: go big, go local. And so we want to do a lot more locally based work. We've already got a task force going, yeah. which I'm very uh, excited about in Teesside, which is really applying the ideas and the principles of the commission to a specific place uh, and seeing how that um, lines up. Um, I'd like to do a few more of those yeah. actually across the country. Uh, and we're working on options for that now. I think the other thing we want to do is to um, let's put it this way, constructively challenge the government to hold up a mirror, if you like, to say, look, here's your ambition. Here's what you're doing. Do these two things match? At the moment, they don't. Let's mm-hmm. keep pushing to see that they do, because it would be easy for us to just get into critical mode. We don't want to do that. We want to work with government, but we also want to reserve the right to challenge them if we don't think they're making enough progress on the agenda. And we'd lastly just like to work very hard on understanding how we're going to measure success. How do we know if we're uh, closing this gap, if we're levelling up or not? So those are the things I have as ambitions for the Commission. There's a lot of work to do, a lot of interesting and exciting work. But most of all, we want to make a difference. Mm, And I suppose the million dollar or million pound question is, do you think they're listening? Do you feel like they're listening? Ah, well, I hope so, is all I'll say. I'm not going to say for certain they are, but I hope so. And I think in the end, they know that if they go to the next general election, 2024 or whatever, um, and they haven't made some material progress and they can't demonstrate that they've got a plan, that's going to damage them. So I think in the end, they will listen because it's important for them uh, as a political party in government. Well, Bob, that's been such an interesting chat. There's so much to get out here. I'm sure we'll continue talking kind of throughout the year. Stay in touch, won't you, and let us know what you're up to. And we'll uh, we'll let everyone know what's going on when we get that kind of blueprint to what we want to see, all right? Yeah, I, I will, Joe. I look forward to working with the Orchard Post uh, and indeed perhaps doing another podcast in a year's time to see where we've got to. Absolutely. See you soon. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and our political editor, Rob Parsons, joined us earlier as well. Now, look, you can find this podcast wherever you usually get your podcasts, whether that's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon, and we would love it if you could take just a little bit of time, leave us a review, subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps to boost us up in the charts. And we will be back next week, and we'll speak to you then.
Do you hear that ticking sound? Is the engine okay? Ah, uh, that's that's the radio. Uh, glitch hop, they call it. Music these days, eh? <laughs> really? You changed the station then? No, no, it's it's kind of catchy. It takes courage to admit you need help. With Alliance Car Insurance, you can also add breakdown assistance. Get a quote online and save twenty five percent. Visit Alliance.ie today. Alliance, we cover courage. Alliance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Standard acceptance criteria and policy conditions apply. Minimum premium of €284. The discount does not apply to breakdown assistance, which is an optional extra and an additional premium applies.